and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit more about myself and my business. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. You see, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, and I know you're going to love the book, you can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase and can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been overwhelmed by the responses via text, email, direct message about how you are shifting your mind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Additionally, I run an accelerator program where I coach executive clients one-on-one. The accelerator is designed for executives who are interested in growing, learning, and figuring out how they can lead and perform better. The Accelerator involves monthly Zoom calls with the community, one-on-one coaching for me bi-weekly, and an annual retreat. We actually just finished our annual retreat last week. Our next Accelerator cohort actually launches in January and is currently filling up. If you've ever been interested in getting executive coaching or are interested in being around other people that are interested in doing well and doing good, feel free to email me. My email is brian at strongskills.co. Once again, that's brian at strongskills.co, and I'd love to learn more about what you're doing to develop yourself. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Bernard Meir is entering his 10th season as the Director of Athletics at Stanford University. And if you follow athletics, you'll know that Stanford has one of the best programs, one of the best departments in the country. During Bernard's tenure, 
he has seen 25 NCAA championships and 34 national titles. He also has been involved with what they call the Learfield IMG College Directors Cup, which basically recognizes the best athletic department in the country. Stanford has won it seven times. So as athletics goes and college athletics, Stanford is elite. And if you're familiar with Stanford, you know that they're elite for more than just athletics. Certainly, it is an institution where academia thrives. So we're going to have a conversation about how Stanford is a little bit different than a lot of other universities that you may follow on a regular basis. And we're going to talk about some of the people that walk on campus at Stanford, both the teachers and the student athletes, and how Bernard is at a front row seat to observe a lot of this greatness, both in the classroom or in the pool, let's say, uh, and, and really what he's learned along the way. What's interesting about Bernard is that he has been in difficult situations as a leader. Stanford had to make a decision as to whether or not they would cut certain programs or keep certain programs. And he certainly has been under fire for announcing that he was going to cut programs in the past. And now it looks like they're going to keep those programs. But Bernard, before we started recording, said, hey, Brian, I'm a pretty open book. You're welcome to ask me anything and I'll share with you my perspective. And if you think about his position that's pretty unusual. So he is a great communicator. He is somebody who cares deeply about leadership. And he recognizes that sometimes his job requires him to make tough decisions. And he owns that. And he owns that aspect of his leadership. Bernard's journey is pretty incredible. And he actually decided that he wanted to be an athletic director from a very young age, which in itself is unusual, especially for someone who played Division I basketball. You're going to love Bernard's candor his honesty, his authenticity, and his overall competence when it comes to doing his job on a regular basis. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Bernard Mir. Bernard, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You were recommended by Lars Tiffany. We're not going to talk about your college days with Lars and um, what the two of you were up to at Brown University. Um, but we are going to focus on you and we're going to shine the spotlight on you. And when I was doing research for this conversation, I was blown away by this idea that you knew you wanted to be an athletic director from a young age. So I'm curious, what is different about being an athletic director today in 2021 than maybe what you thought it was going to be like when you were a teenager or whenever you first thought that you'd want to be an athletic director? What's different about the job that you weren't aware yeah, of back great, then? Great, great question. Thanks for having me. First off, uh, Lars is a great friend. And so when he, he told me that he had done this and, and recommended me, I was all in. Uh, uh, we had such a great experience with Brown. I'm glad we're not talking about those days uh, and what I know about Lars and, and some of his teammates. But, uh, you know, I, like you said, I always wanted to be an AD. I think the complexity of the job now, especially in the last, I'd say, couple of years, uh, is is. It's not something that I certainly could have imagined. I think when you think about issues like NIL this week, we're thinking about, you know, what's going on in the world and the fires that are out here in the West and the impact that could have on sport, obviously COVID and the pandemic and how to navigate that and allow competition to still uh, commence uh, while trying to keep your student athletes and those surrounding the student athletes safe uh, and allow them to play what they play the games they love. So those are just, three of many uh, issues that are just coming down the pike uh, in college sport. 
Um, and, and so trying to navigate this, be well-versed on it, rely on uh, your, the resources that are around you, whether whether it be uh, within your athletic department, within the campus community, even broader than that, alumni, alumni and friends. So I think I would have never imagined, you know, when I was in 10th grade thinking about this as a career, uh, that these are some of the issues we'd be facing. It's an abnormal job for a 10th grader to profess to the world that they want to be an athletic director, especially you're, you're a good athlete. So I'm curious, why were you drawn to this position uh, as opposed to coaching or, or playing or, or something else in 10th grade? Well, truth be known, I, I thought I'd coach first and then get into administration. That was my plan. I grew up in Gainesville, Florida. So the University of Florida truly was just a few blocks away uh, from my house. Uh, as I always say, stone throw away. And I used to, you know, serve drinks at Gator games. Uh, I was a boys club kid, boys and girls club kid growing up. And so I'd have the opportunity to go to the games two hours before, set up, get ready, sell, stay an hour later. And I just, just from just being enamored by all the activity going around uh, to put on a game. And that could be from, you know, parking lots. How do you bring all these people in to obviously the concessions, which was what I was a part of to, just watching teams perform uh, before before the actual competition and, and the warmups and all the people that were involved in game day activities. And I remember picking up a media guide and, and looking through it and said, boy, it'd be great to make this your career. Uh, and I remember looking at a position, looking at somebody, the bigger picture, it said the athletic director. And I knew that person was in charge of all that was going on. And I thought, boy, that would be great. I knew I had no professional aspirations uh, the way I played you would understand why. Uh, and so I, I just thought, um, you know, if I could make this my career, because I was so passionate about college sport, uh, I, I thought it would be great. And so that's that's why I set out to, to pursue that. I, I did think I would coach first, but uh, the opportunities presented themselves in administration right away. And I thought, well, let me just go all on that track. Um, and, and so that's what I did. And I've been fortunate to work in Major League Soccer. And one of my roles with DC United was to go interview players at the Combine. And there were a lot of Jamaican soccer players um, that I got to interview. And we're going to get into Jamaican culture in a little bit. But I'm curious for you, like, what drew you to basketball? And, and was there not somebody in your ear saying, hey, kick the ball, don't shoot it? Uh, like, what drew you to basketball? Well, now, my my parents are Jamaican. I grew up in the States. So from uh, the get go, I was born in New York, moved to Florida. And from, you know, as, a, as I said earlier, I was a boys and girls club kid. And so um, at the time, I was exposed to a number of sports. But at, I also was five, seven, uh, as a freshman in high school. Uh, and then later, as a senior, uh, and actually as a junior, I was like six, four, six, five. Uh, and, and so all of a sudden basketball became the thing. Uh, and I felt like I could get better at it. Uh, I really love football, but like I said, I was a five, seven, I was barely a hundred pounds. And when I saw our high school football team, I just thought I'm, I'm not that fast. I don't know where I would play. And so this might not be the best outcome for me, even though I, that probably was my first love. Uh, and, and, but I, I really gravitated toward basketball as a point guard, and then became a post player uh, as a senior. And so that, that to me was uh, a chance and an opportunity. And I wanted to play because I wanted to be an athletic director. I wanted to play college sport. I thought that would be, would be great to have uh, as part of the portfolio. And so I, I just was hooked on basketball and really wanted to be as good as I, I could be. 
all right, Bernard, when I'm in 10th grade and I'm starting to think about college, I'm not thinking about what this is going to have on my long-term <laughs> business. Like what I always tell people is I was, I was really good at being present in college and I was so good at being present in college that I graduated from a private university without a job. And like, that's how good I was at staying present. But here you are. <laughs> And you're deciding at 15, 16 years old, I want to be an athletic director. So I'm actually going to try to make it as a basketball player in college so that it's good for my resume so that down the road, I can be an athletic director. And I, when I hear that my 15, 16 year old self says like, what is wrong with this dude? Like, what, dude, just enjoy it. You're, you're, you're probably a big time ball player in your high school. Um, and then you go on to, Brown University, which is an Ivy League historic institution. And um, like, you're doing well, Bernard, like chill out a little bit is what my 15, 16 year old says. Did, did people think that you were too serious when you were younger? Were people telling you to lighten up and to relax and enjoy? Or, or were people sort of encouraging you? Yeah, go for your dreams. Like, it's great that you know what you want to do and, and that you're thinking about adding some intention to that at a young age? I, I think it, it was more the latter. People were, my mom, my parents uh, were always big in education. And so my mom always said, you know, you go get the best education you possibly can. And if you could go Ivy, not knowing I was going to get recruited by Brown uh, and a few others, but uh, I, I just said, okay, I hear you. And, and as I said, I had no professional aspiration. So I thought, okay, let me go get the best education I can. If I can play basketball in college, that'd be awesome. I think at the highest level I possibly can. This was uh, Brown uh, came recruiting, and and when I went on the campus, I, I fell in love with it and, and the team, and I thought this would be terrific. I did have in mind, like I said, to, to go be an AD. I sought my AD out. Actually, you'll appreciate this story. I sought him out the first days I was on campus. So yes, I was driven, um, and I told him, hey, listen, someday I want to be in your shoes, and he said. I've had freshmen come up. I, he said, I've had seniors come up to me on their way out thinking about a career in athletics. Never had a freshman. I'll be at a cocky one, if you will. Yeah, and that's not he, normal, he, right? That's not normal. A freshman comes on the campus, said, says to the, to the guy yeah. who's running the department, hey, I want, I want to do what you're doing. Once again, when I was in freshman, like I was trying to figure out how to get to my classes and like yeah. what, what, how to live away from home. But you're, you're going up. Where did that? You said a little bit of cockiness. Where did that belief in yourself um, to dream big and, and to go, you know, introduce yourself and be proactive and be driven and ambitious? Is that from mom and dad? Is that more mom? Is that more dad? Where do you think that comes from for you? Yeah. I think that's probably more mom than dad. Uh, my dad's a little more laid back and reserved uh, or was, uh, they both have passed, but, but my mom was just like, you've you got to be forthright, know what you want, and then follow through and then make sure, you know, you're doing it appropriately and politely and, uh, and, and gratefully as, as well. And so those opportunities, if they presented themselves, I was going to take it. And I saw my AD first and I was like, Hey, I know this is what I want to do. Can you work with me? And he said, you know what, you you may change your mind. That's what people do in college. I just didn't. And so my senior year, my my ad had left and went to butler university and he came back i happened to be in the same graduating class as his daughter he came back for graduation and he saw me and we ran into each other he says what are you going to do next and i said gave the typical senior response i have no idea then he said well, why don't you come work as an intern at butler and i didn't even know where butler was at the time 
um, you know, growing up in the South and going to school in the East, East, I had no idea where Butler was, but I went and it happened to be the same year they co-hosted the final four. And so all of a sudden I made contacts at the NCAA again, not being shy. I approached my future boss, Tom Jernstead, and just said, Hey, someday I'd love to, you know, be in college sport. What do you think? And, and later on, a few stops later, I ended up working for him and he's, he was, he, unfortunately, uh, he just passed away a year ago, but he's the, the architect, the kind of the godfather of the final four. And I had the, the good fortune of working for him. Um, but again, I just was driven, knew what I wanted to do. And so tried to engage with the people that really knew what they were doing in, in the business and the profession. We're going to come back to this, but you mentioned death a few times. You mentioned your parents passing away, a mentor passing away. You know, as we get older, more and more people pass. And it's like the nature of living is that bad things are going to happen if you live long enough. What have you learned from, from those experiences of loss and how has it helped shape you as a human being? Well, I think the one thing I learned is just gratitude of having you know life here on earth and, and trying to interact with people. You don't take any day for granted. I think about that all the time. Um, and, and so those people who are really important in your life, you think they're going to be around forever. And, and so you just, since you don't know um, when that day will come, you, you really have to appreciate those moments. And so uh, many times throughout a day or throughout uh, a certain event, I will just pause and just be thankful uh, and, and just be reminded like, gosh, I get to do this or I get to see this or I get to experience this and I just should be grateful. And so I, I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, just the opportunities of that we've been given and how fortunate we are to, to do uh, what we're doing. I often say that it's hard to be grateful and stressed at the same time. And the job that you have is going to have stress. You've got decisions on budget cuts or do we keep teams? Do we, how you have excellence at Stanford, which we'll get to the athletic department, you know, you all expect to win championships and do amazing in the classroom. So there's going to be stress whenever you're trying to do big things in this world. But I, I love the idea of just grounding yourself in gratitude. And I don't like going to funerals, but I always find that they reset me um, and give me perspective. And it's, it's one of the things I've surprisingly missed during the pandemic is people have passed and it's kind of sad that we don't get to have um, those gatherings, those yep. community events. And just like when we bring people in this world, when, when people leave this world too, there are times to reflect. So um, thanks. Thanks for, for sharing that. Um, your, your, your parents. So you mentioned that they were born in Jamaica. You were born in the U S one of the things that I experienced when I worked with Jamaican athletes or when I interviewed them for the combine. And I'm curious to get your perspective on this as a son of Jamaicans, culturally speaking, the first thing that comes to mind for me with Jamaica is Bob Marley and, you know, no worries. And it, yeah. for those that aren't familiar with Bob Marley, musically, if you ask musical experts, they'll say Bob Marley is as, talented and as renowned a musician as any musician in history. I mean, it, it's really remarkable, but I think about reggae and I think about this, no worries, beach culture. There's some other stuff that comes with it too, which we don't need to get into in the podcast, but maybe you can pass on that. Yeah. You know, 2021, we won't talk about drug testing or anything like that in college <laughs> athletics, but I'm curious because there's this dynamic that I noticed that I wasn't aware of in Jamaican culture 
where parents are also from my experience tough on their kids um there is like these like a lot of soccer players would say you know i'd i'd go i'd go to school then i just go play soccer then i come home then my parents might be really tough on me or even physical with me there is like a um there's this dynamic that as you're describing your dad being laid back but your mom being tough almost or driven or strong-willed there's a polarity there that I've noticed with Jamaicans. And maybe this is a generalization on my part, but given that you've lived in that house, can you talk about Jamaican culture and maybe what I'm hitting on and uh, sort of this, this, these, these different elements that exist within that culture? Yeah, there, there is this laid back and appreciation for uh, opportunity. Uh, certainly my parents, when they came to this country, there were great opportunities that they didn't have uh, back in, in Jamaica. So that's part of the reason why they came uh, there. But there's also there's this laid back nature, but there's also this side of being driven and taking advantage of the opportunity that you have and making sure you don't waste it. And and so, yeah, the discipline was in my, in my mind, looking back, I would say fierce in that, you know, when my mom said to be home at 4.30 or 5 o'clock for dinner, she meant 5 o'clock, not 5.01, 5.02. And if I wasn't there, I, I would I would know. And you you said physical. I, I do remember some spankings that I had or the belt coming out, which we don't do in this modern time when we, and I get it, but that was an influence. And, and that's a reminder of you, you do what your parents say. And so, um, you know, the, the discipline, but yet at the same to token, we, we all love Bob Marley. We all love reggae music. Um, and there was a chance to relax and enjoy and dance and, and have fun um, with friends, uh, 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 fellow Jamaicans, if you will. Um, but, but so there was a, this balance, there's this discipline, but yeah, they also knew how to kick back and have some fun um, and, and good times. You have two daughters of your own. Obviously, the spanking, the belt stuff, you're not the first person to talk about that generation, generationally. And then there's cultures and yep. you know, it, it's, it's a complicated topic. But um, raising your daughters uh, who themselves, student athletes, Stanford, Duke, when I think of like the two, I was just with my buddies. Duke, Duke. Not, not there yet. She's still in high school, but going to going to Duke. Yeah, yeah. So when I, I was with my buddies this past weekend and I said to them, if you had a student athlete. Uh, and you know, obviously your kids get to decide where they want to do and blaze their own path. But if you could say, Hey, Johnny or Sally, you know, where do you want to go to school and you can play sports and you can learn the first two schools that they brought up were Stanford and Duke. Uh, and then, you know, there's someone that would say Harvard or Penn or, you know, maybe Brown or whatever school, but Stanford and Duke, when I think of these schools that have academic and athletic excellence, or at least aspire to, um, those two come to mind. So I'm curious for you, as you raise these, these kids, how you think about them as a, as a father, when it comes to athletics and also academics and striving for excellence, but also being healthy, uh, healthy and happy young adults. Yeah, well, there's something that obviously that you can gain from uh, college athletics and from athletics in general um, that you, you just it, it just helps in your maturation. I mean, the, the thought of being it's bigger than yourself and it's it's teamwork, um, being part of a team and what that means. I, I'm thrilled that they gravitated toward these sports, one uh, lacrosse and, and the younger one going to, is, is going to be a volleyball student athlete, uh, hopefully in a, in a year's time at Duke. 
Um, I just know it's it's obviously you're proud that they get to have this opportunity, but you're also excited because you know that they're going to have some make some friends that they will be stay connected to for quite some time for life, and and they'll learn a lot about themselves, and they'll learn you know the highs, but they also learn disappointments and. And I think for both, they've they've experienced that. They're going to experience more of that for my younger one, who has who has college ahead. Um, and and I think that they'll learn a lot about themselves. And they also will learn fortitude. Like regardless of what happens, they got to push forward. There's a next. There's another year. There's another season. And when that ends, you just draw from it and look back and reflect. And hopefully, more highs and lows. And and that's what you'll take from it. Most people don't know what they want to do for a living. And you mentioned you know, you were pretty clear on the path and the vision. Do you think that's a blessing to know what you want to do at a young age, a curse? How do, how do you think about that as you think about your two daughters and, you know, I don't know if they're clear on where they want to go or you see student athletes every day and some are clear on it and some are unsure. How do you think about it? You know, I, I, I just think, you know, it's whatever is to each his own. And, you know, for me, even though I knew what I wanted to do, I'm not saying that's the, the only way to do this. I, I obviously interact with student athletes who don't know. Uh, and I, I think there's some beauty in that, too, because while you're in college, uh, that's the plan. Or even when you're a few years out, you're exploring. And so you and some folks may say you never know. And you just you, you know, you develop and you you deal with the opportunities that are uh, that that arise and, and you and you make it the, the best you possibly can. Uh, so I, I, to say it's a blessing or a curse at this point, I just say, you just go with it. You experience it, you enjoy the experience and then try to make opportunities, uh, make your own opportunities, uh, from whatever experience that you have. And, and like I said earlier, just for me, I, I just was, I was hell bent. I knew what I wanted. I knew what I got passionate about. I think that's probably the, the key thing is what drives, drives the most passion that you can get up every day and go, I am excited about doing this. Uh, and, and this was it for me. I'm not saying uh, for others, it may not come uh, for uh, a little while. And, and so, but whatever it is, hopefully whenever that time comes that you're saying it's time to work, um, that you can really get excited about that, whatever you're going to do uh, long-term for your profession. When I heard you explaining why you had this vision for yourself, it really sounded like curiosity. It's not like, I'm curious about how this whole big gator operation works in Gainesville, Florida. There seems like a lot of, because I would imagine in Gainesville, University of Florida is the professional sports team in town. No doubt. No and, doubt. Yep. and so you're watching like this massive operation and we've had on people from Florida before and similar to Stanford, Florida excels in a variety of sports. It's not just football. It's not just basketball. Uh, Stanford and Florida are two of the, I think there's 10 teams that have had championship national champion men's basketball and um and men's football and obviously the women's basketball program at stanford has been elite the women's soccer team at florida we could go on and on 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 your programs but curiosity uh it sounded like you were just curious like i want to know how this works and i'm passionate and learning about it as you sit in the seat that you're in now where you're not the athletic director at florida but you're at a school that has a similar um pedigree when it comes to sports what are you most curious about in the seat that you're you're sitting in currently? Well, I'm just curious, uh, obviously, about what's on the horizon, what's next. I, I think in in sport, you realize quickly, you know, you had a great year last year, 
but now there's you start anew and every year you start anew and so you just don't know what's on the horizon what our teams can achieve we have 36 sports here uh at stanford and so I, I'm just curious how far we can go uh, in a given year. And then I'm also obviously thinking about the horizon for the next year and the year after that. And how can we put our teams in a position? We like to, uh, at least I like to, to often talk about having every program be in the hunt uh, and be in the hunt for championships, conference championships. If you're, if the ball falls a certain way, national championships, um, or I should say whatever playing field you're on, um, but I, it, to, to me, I think that curiosity of what we can do, what can we aspire to, um, is, is what drives you each and every day. And I know it drives our coaches and our student athletes to be their very best. And I would imagine for athletes that choose Stanford, there is the academic draw. It's not just the athletic draw and the gift that you can get from being around people that are interested in changing the world from a business standpoint or psychology standpoint yeah. or whatever medical um, there's so many thought leaders on campus. There's so much intelligence. The people whose books I read, they are like down the hall from you, right? Like they are in a different building. Carol Dweck comes to mind. Oh, sure. Sure. Like Andrew Aberman. There are these like brilliant minds that you have access to on campus. How do you leverage that so that your student athletes get an experience that may be, look, University of Florida is also an amazing uh, school in its own right, but it might be different than what someone's going to experience at University of Florida. How do you all leverage the, the mind space and the intelligence that you have on campus so that your student athletes can thrive? Well, certainly through our application process, we're, we are, uh, you know, you talked about curiosity. We're, we're, we're really drawing on that intellectual curiosity. Uh, and that's why one of the draws of coming to a place like Stanford is that we want you to be curious on the academic side. And we obviously want you to be curious in your sport and see how you can, how far you can go uh, in that, that balance, which is, which is really important to uh, our student athletes is, is what really strikes a chord for them. And, and that's why they aspire to do greatness. What is also uh, at hand is when we talk about the intellectual side is having this vast array of people, resources uh, that are available to them as professors, advisors, um, alumni who are in the area who are, or have a connection to Stanford, who want to help people just be their very best. And so that is something that our student athletes have at their disposal. And we encourage encourage them to explore, especially in the curriculum here, the classes that they're able to take uh, and, and really just spark that curiosity even further. And so that's, that is really the unique draw here uh, in Palo Alto. Uh, and that's something that we, we constantly are touting. And, and at times when we can, we try to draw them in. We have a program called Faculty Fellows that allows our faculty to come together with our student athletes and really just talk about what their interests are, where they wanna go do exactly what I was talking about early on uh, as a 10th grader is to say, here's what I, I think I aspire to. Here's what drives me. How can you help me? And so we, we're doing that right here uh, on this campus. You mentioned greatness. And I think about your comment earlier about, you know, I wanted to play at the highest level I could. And for me, Brown was the place where I could do that, where look, the Ivy league is, is nothing to, to shrug your shoulders at. There's plenty of amazing athletes in, in the Ivy League. I've had on athletes on this podcast that went to the Ivy League and played professionally in their sports. So um, it, it is a, a really high level. And Stanford in the Pac-12, it, it's a different 
experience than, than an Ivy league experience. And there's, there's more that goes into that. And that word greatness, I think about if I'm not an athlete and I want to go to Stanford, I probably want to be great at something. And that's part of the draw probably to attending a school like Stanford. What, how do you think about greatness? How do you define it? How do you think about it for yourself, for your athletes, for your kids, uh, for your community? How do you think about greatness? Ooh, that's, that's a loaded question. I, I, you know, for me, I, I, I think, I just think about doing the very best you can with what you have and trying to hone your skills uh, to the, the best degree possible. And if you, you know, experience um, in the, in the case of sport, uh, more wins than losses and they mount up and all of a sudden you can claim and the hoist uh, our, our football coach talks about tangible uh, evidence uh, of success. And if you're doing that often, that's, that's a chance to achieve, I, I would say greatness. Um, uh, but you know, for some, you may not have that tangible evidence and you still can experience um, uh, some satisfaction in knowing that you've done uh, as best you can. Uh, but th those who are able to do it at such a high level consistently, yeah, they, they may have more tangible evidence uh, of their success um, uh, for people to see and, and appreciate. And a big part of your job is hiring, hiring senior staff, hiring coaches. What qualities are you looking for when you're, when you're hiring people? I love that aspect of the job when you have opportunities to come and build your team, build your bench, if you will. Um, I, the, the, the aspects when, when you look at any, any um, job opening is, are you passionate? Are you, I get back to that same word because it's so meaningful, at least to me, that you really enjoy what you're doing and, and the people you do it with. Uh, and so do you bring that? Obviously, you have to know your craft, uh, whatever that is, whatever realm that is. Uh, obviously, hopefully you're going to be a kind of a lifelong learner. And so you're just not going to rest on what you know today, but you're going to try to listen and learn from others, observe from others, and then try to impart that on, on your, uh, on your craft. Uh, so if you, if you bring those two things to the table, then certainly you're going to be on our short list. Uh, and then, then the intangibles of just knowing the place you're, where you're working and understanding, uh, you know, the benefits of this place is really important. So, I, I'd like to think that, you know, we, we've had some great success um, in, in doing just that. And hopefully we can continue to attract uh, the best and brightest to come join us uh, in the future. Anything that you notice when you make a mistake? I think people, we've all brought in the wrong person. Um, and when I say the wrong person, I don't even mean a bad person, just a wrong person for what you're looking to hire or for your ecosystem or your culture or whatever you want to call it. Um, what are some mistakes you've made along the way when, when hiring? You don't have to get in a specific like person or anything like that, but what are some things that maybe you overlooked or that you were had a blind spot toward when it came to hiring? Uh, you know, sometimes you, 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 you put a profile together of a person and, you know, this hiring process happens so fast that sometimes you don't pause. Maybe you have a blind spot uh, and then you're just trying to make it work and you spend a lot of time uh, trying to mentor, trying to help, cajole to say, hey, we, we need you to, to operate in this way uh, and, and try to see over time things will play out, whether it's, it's meant to be or do you have to make a course correction or that person gets so frustrated that they have to, they decide to do something else. That sort of plays itself out. But a lot of times, hopefully when it's successful, people start to get, gain a sense of, okay, here's the culture. Here's what we're trying to do. 
and I can fit within it. Uh, and I'm comfortable fitting within it. Uh, and then we move from there. And then on the other side of the coin, a lot of the executives I work with, it's hard, it's hard firing people. It's hard letting go of people or making those types of decisions. Any advice for people when they're having to do that and anything you've learned in, in your years of, of being in that position? Yeah, you know, I, I, that's a great question. I, I, I would say, well, it's really difficult, especially when you say you're in the trenches with someone, you're trying to work through it, and then all of a sudden you have to separate uh, uh, and, and you've been through a lot together. There are times for the, for the sake uh, and the betterment of the organization that you do have to make change. Never easy. I don't know, know, even know if I could give advice because each circumstance is different. It's very difficult. Um, but when you know in your gut, as people have told me, and you, you know what's right and it's time, you, you have to do what's right for uh, the, the organization which you serve and, and, and carry out that and hopefully do it fairly, appropriately, uh, and, and be able to move on. It's interesting. I was talking to somebody in sports about this yesterday, that question of who do you serve? And it, like, it is such an interesting question. And um, let's move away from like the macro. If someone thinks they serve God or, you know, the sort of, cause I, I get that, but in, in the context of business, uh, who do you serve? And you think about an athlete, like they're really focused on serving themselves and serving the team. And, and like, that's usually their focus. And then you have a coach who has to think about, all right, they have to serve themselves. They have to serve the team, but they also have to think about how the team then reflects the university. And and perhaps they have to start thinking a little bit beyond it. And some coaches really struggle with that because they're so obsessed and focused on trying to get their team to row the boat in the same direction. And then I think about where you are and you have to think about your constituents are, are vast. You know, you have uh, a president of university, you have, uh, your staff, you then have coaches and you have athletes. I'm not saying this in that order. Right. Uh, and then there's alumni and there's boosters and there's, there's all these constituents that you have to serve. And I think of the, about the difficulty of an athletic director is that you have to figure out how to serve all these constituents without them feeling like they're not being served. Like you have to make sure they're all getting fed. How do you intentionally deal with figuring out ways in which to serve all of them but at not at the expense of serving none of them. So how do you serve all of them without maybe serving um, none of them? You know, it, it's interesting. I always feel like um, there's so many, like the constituencies that you mentioned. At, at the end of the day, uh, I, I do uh, rest with, uh, I've come to the conclusion that I'm not going to please everyone. And, and so no matter what decision you make, you know that there's somebody who's going to be disappointed. We talked about just two seconds ago, hiring coaches and firing and, and that type of thing. Whenever you make a hire, you're going to disappoint others on that list, on that short list. And you've got to, you have to come to grips with that. It's tough making that call for a candidate that you really like, but you went in a different direction. That's just as tough as even saying, I've got to separate from someone else. Um, really hard because you have invested time, energy in people and, and so as you're talking about serving all these diverse constituencies, it is really difficult because sometimes you're going to have to make choices. Everybody wants to be number one or aspires to get to number one. And they feel like it's your job to make sure, you know, we never lose. We never have a loss. And that's just not sport. And so really trying to manage the expectations of here's what we're trying to do. Here's what we're attempting to do. We may hit on and have a, a championship run in a, a given year. And it may take time to get to that point. 
uh, and just trying to manage that. And everybody, as you know, in sport has an opinion. That's why we have armchair quarterbacks and, and, and point guards and all the other analogies you want to create. And, and at the same token, you're trying to do what you think is right. Um, and not saying that it's always what you're doing is right, but you're trying to do with the best information you have, the best job you possibly can. And so managing that uh, can be a bit of a challenge, but also understanding that, you know what, I'm not going to most likely make every alumni, student athlete, coach, all the people, administrators, exactly happy, but hopefully we're kind of moving in a direction together uh, and people understand the vantage point from which the lens you're, you're looking from. One of the reasons that you're in the position you're in is because you had clarity on where you wanted to go and then you weren't afraid to ask people for help and go up to them and pick their brain and seek advice. And so I'd imagine you are pretty open to when an athlete, a student athlete comes up to you and says, Hey, I'd want to learn more about, you know, the business side of collegiate athletics how do you say yes to things and no to things? Because you're in this in part because people said, yes, yeah, sure. I'll give you a minute of my time or I'll, I'll share some thoughts, but here you are, you're, you're at a big time school and um, I'm sure people want you to speak and serve on panels or pick your brain for five minutes or, you know, someone's daughter or son is interested in athletics and they think of you. How do you figure out when to say yes and when to say no? Even coming on this podcast, you said yes to it. Um, you're a busy guy. Like, how do you figure out what to say yes to and what to say no to? Yeah, uh, great question. Uh, I, I would I would say, you know, I, I hearken back to that first story I told you about my AD, approaching my AD, John Perry at Brown. I remember him saying to me, look, I, I've opened the doors for you in multiple ways, which he did. He says, I hope you will do the same for uh, those who come uh, after you. And, I, and I've taken that to heart. And so when, it's, when I get an email or a call and a student who's trying to get in the profession or somebody wants to consider this, I, I make it a point, my assistant knows this, that I will, I will follow up with that person uh, and spend the time. And whether it's a, now Zoom is the popular thing or a call or uh, I really want to do the face-to-face so it's not just email back and forth. So uh, uh, call it a minimum. I, I think that's important. And it's, it doesn't take long. And it hopefully will help some of the next generation uh, moving forward. So I, I don't often say no. There's, you know, there's opportunities. Why, why am I doing this? My, my, my good buddy who I trust said, hey, you, I think you'd benefit from this. And this has been a great conversation. And so that's what, what I do. There's times where you just know, I got to know, we talked about servant leadership. I, I know what I'm, who I'm serving and what I'm trying to do. And so as long as I'm not, it's not taking me away from doing that uh, and spending an hour with you is not doing that, uh, I, I think that's what guides me. So, yeah, there's times where I have to say no, but if it's talking about somebody's career and opportunities ahead, I'm going to say yes and figure that out. You mentioned passion being key earlier. What are you most passionate about in the role that you're in? Uh, what, do you, what do you enjoy most about it? What are you passionate about? the most in the role that you're in? I, I'm passionate about, you know, allowing people to be their very best in what they're what in their craft. And, and for our student athletes at their core to have this opportunity where they want to compete on a high stage and they want to excel and they want to do it uh, to the highest degree possible. Uh, and, and, and I'm not saying all 36 of our programs are in that position today, but we are working. I'm passionate about wor- working with our team. It's not just me. Uh, uh, running this this opportunity, but it's a united front 
and I'm, I am passionate about trying to make those dreams, fulfill those dreams uh, to allow them to come true uh, for our students and our coaches and all those people that have an invested interest in seeing their success. All right, I'm going to allow you to talk about one of your athletes and uh, who you've been around the last few years, um, who I'm connected to because I'm from Bethesda, Maryland. And so I would imagine that gave it away who I'm going to ask Katie. about. So, so I've been trying to get Katie on this podcast for a while now. That's a whole separate thing we've had on Katie's strength coach. I've talked to Katie's coaches that, that been around her. And the one thing that I'm just blown away by when it comes to her is that like, I went to a Bruce Springsteen concert. There's Katie Ledecky at Nats park, hanging out, I think with a Nats hat on. I don't know if she's wearing a Stanford hat, but um, <laughs> you know, just hanging out. And I'm like, this is one of the best athletes ever. Like incredible. And then you hear her talk and she is just so normal and seemingly like, but brilliant and great and clear. And, and like, I, I'm so curious about Katie Ledecky. And so can you take us behind the curtain, uh, share what you've observed? And think about it. I want people to realize this person could have done whatever the heck she wanted to when she was 18 years old. Um, and look, getting an education from Stanford is, is an amazing thing. But I think a lot of people were shocked that she decided to go to college and, and be a student athlete. So I've talked way too much. Give us some insight into what you observed when it came to Katie and what you noticed the, over the years. I, I would just say this. I mean, you're, you're right. Uh, a world, truly world-class athlete, but her humility is what has struck me. Um, uh, you know, and I, that's, and that's Katie. And I'm not, I'm not saying there's so many student athletes that you could, I could point to, at least in my time here that ex 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 express that same humility, exude that same humility, if you will. Uh, but Katie's, I mean, because of the attention drawn, especially walking in here as a freshman, coming off of the Olympics uh, in Rio, um, uh, or it was in London, when she was a freshman dressed after the Olympics, and for her to just want to be a member of a team. We talked about that earlier on, what that means. That was what was important to her. She wanted to be part of a unit. She could have gone professional as, and, and you know, had her individual career, but she wanted to be a part of a unit and a team and obviously did really well as a collegiate. Um, I, that to me was just so impressive. And, and all the demands and all the attention that was drawn to her, she, she wanted just to train and, and be a student. It, there's images of her in her band uniform. And if you've seen the band at Stanford, they're kind of unique. They're very unique. Um, and she wanted to be a part of that, experience what that means. And the one thing I am, when I think about her and just her overall experience, I was struck from the moment I had the chance to visit with her as a prospect and was very engaging, knew what she wanted to do. Uh, we knew that she had a professional career ahead, but like I said, she wanted to be part uh, of a place where she could have that balance, where she go, can pursue her academics, but then compete at a high level. And then afterward, I remember getting a note. I think I still have it. Uh, I know I still have it. Uh, she wrote a thank you note uh, to me as a, as you know, a kid in high school, just saying thank you for taking the time to visit with me. And I already knew from our coaches how great she could become. Um, but I, I thought, boy, to have that poise and humility and and being able to to the gratitude to say, hey, thank you for taking the time to 
to tell me a little bit about Stanford from your lens, uh, I, I just was really uh, blown away. And then watching her over the course of her time here um, just was just so impressed. It's interesting because as a society, we love greatness. Like we cherish greatness, especially in sports. We're drawn to it. It's inspiring. Awe comes from it. And yet I have two kids, you have two kids. And I think about like, what do I most want for my kids? I think what my parents instilled in me is to be good, like to just be a good person. And if you are great at something, that's great too. And you should work hard and be driven and ambitious and chase your dreams. But all that's worthless if you're not a good person. And I think for me, at least what's inspiring about Katie is from the outside looking in and from talking to enough people that have been around her is that she is a good human being and she's happens to be one of the great athletes ever. And yeah. I just think sometimes as parents, there can be too much focus on trying to instill greatness rather than just saying, Hey, be a good person. And then you'll figure out where you're going to take that drive and that ambition. And we'll find your way there, but you know, just do the right thing. Like you said earlier. And to me, she embodies that in such a beautiful way. And, it, you know, we get to see it every four years in a world spotlight, but it's cool that you got to witness it on a no, daily it's, basis. And you would see it, 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 days would go by. Obviously she's training in the morning. She's training in the afternoon. We have a little cafe uh, here in our, uh, within our footprint and our athletic footprint. And, you know, Katie, as well as, you know, Christian McCaffrey, or you, you picked the, the, the Bryce level kids that have come through here. Um, I should say young men and women who have come through here and they're just love being a part of this place. Uh, their stories. I didn't overlap with Andrew Luck uh, when he was here and he was a celebrity in his own right, but he just loved being just part of the community here at Stanford and just would show up in these places uh, and think nothing of it. And no one would bother the, no one bothers Katie uh, while she's here, she just can be a student, just like everyone. And I think they have this sheer appreciation of just being able to be themselves and not have everyone, uh, you know, come up for autographs or hound you. Just be who you are. And at, at and you said it at her core, she's really a good person. It's interesting you mentioned Bryce Love, and I'm based in Washington D.C., so I grew up on the football team here. And Bryce Love was drafted, um, but got hurt. Uh, while he was at Stanford, you know, you mentioned Christian McCaffrey, he's considered the best running back in the NFL. So you have greatness, but Bryce loves an interesting example. And I think about identity and how a lot of athletes will graduate from Stanford and not have an NFL to go to or an NBA to go to or a WNBA to go to. Um, and they're going to have to just go and maybe they'll get a job in Silicon Valley. Um, but how do you help athletes and how does your department help them think about what their identity is as an athlete? Uh, and then if something happens, like what, what happened to Bryce Love where he had this injury and he's looked like he's continuing to work to try to get himself back. But, um, you know, he had a path that was very clear and then it got altered really quickly. So how do you help your athletes think about their identity beyond this, beyond the sport? I think just coming to a place, again, going back to that application process, I think that's where they know that they have to be well-rounded uh, because if you're going to come and work hard to get into a place like Stanford, and then once you're here, you know that the work is not done. Uh, it's never done. And so 
uh, I, I, I credit our professors for inspiring them to understand that there's something beyond just their sport. Uh, and so many of our student athletes that I could reel off many names, uh, including Bryce, that are just took full advantage of the opportunities that, that uh, uh, were here and were offered here. And so regardless of when their professional career stops, they know that they can fall back on that degree and, and that education that they received while they were here. Uh, and they can do many other things in the world. And so that's, that's, that's a credit to all the people that are surrounded in this community that work to inspire uh, uh, student athletes for life. We mentioned the constituents earlier, and you have all these constituents that you have to serve. And you mentioned servant leadership. When I think about someone who wants to be a servant leader, I often think about, well, are they putting their mask on first before they're helping everyone else get their mask on? And the word mask now takes a whole different, yeah. whole different right. meaning. But I'm thinking of the oxygen mask when you're on the airplane. Yes. It, you know, if it's going down, you got to put your mask on first before you're helping someone else. And I was actually with the college sports team yesterday and I was talking about, hey, you all need to put your mask on. So when you're in class, your mask has to be on. When you're inside and watching film, your mask has to be on. But when you step onto that field or that court or in that pool, take the mask off. Like now it's about serving each other. And, and it's actually, we're now in a position to serve each other. So there's a cool little analogy that we can use. Oh. If there's something good to come out of COVID, it's the mask analogy. But for yourself, what do you do to make sure that, that you're good, that you're healthy, that you're well, because um, you have a lot of people that are relying on you to, to serve. Yeah, I am trying to do the exercise I, over the course of COVID, especially I, I did like many others around the country, I bought the Peloton bike and uh, try to get in, get a little workout in the morning. I do a little yoga um, and just try to walk where I can. Uh, as, as much as I can and, and stay at least sound, sound body, sound mind. Certainly many of my mentors have just said, just read anything, read everything. Uh, and so there's uh, times when I'm clicking on the, the, the mouse here and just trying to check up on what's going on in the world, um, trying to pick up a book. Uh, and, and I need to do that even more religiously, if you will, um, and just try to be ready. And then the other thing is engaging with others and listening to others uh, and, and trying to, to learn as much as I can, not only about the sports world, but the things outside of sport. And uh, certainly business is intriguing to me and, and trying to apply that to what I'm doing in the daily, daily uh, task here. So uh, it's really trying to be a sponge uh, and also try to stay somewhat fit um, and, and be ready for whatever uh, the day lies ahead. I've been fortunate to work with people that sit in a similar seat to you. And one of the things that I know is really challenging is, is the business side of collegiate athletics. And we now have NIL coming or it's here, I should say. Sure, and yeah. so it, it's getting there. There's a transfer portal that's be, made things interesting. I'll use. Um, mm -hmm. And so there are these elements that occur that maybe the average person doesn't realize impact what you're trying to do culturally and um building and and you all were very public about i think it was uh potentially cutting 11 teams and then you know i think in the last few months sort of said hey i think we're going to be able to keep these teams i've worked with universities that have had to go through that process as well it's not unique to you 
Um, I think Brown has gone through it. You're on the mater. So talk about what those experiences have been like for you and, and being in that seat and dealing with some of the business side of sport and what you've learned uh, over the years and in, in being in the position that you're in. Well, I mean, obviously we, we just gone through a difficult 18 month period with the discontinuation of sports. Now we've got the reinstatement. So we're in a much better place than we were when we started the, the business side the actuality of trying to run, uh, at the time, uh, well, we're running 36 programs. What was daunting was the finances uh, were getting tighter and tighter. Um, and we, we weren't in a position where we could get help even from the center, from the university. Many people point to our endowment as a university and say, well, come on, you can't be strapped. But the, those, that endowment is restricted in many, many realms. Uh, it's for you know, the research and education uh, of our student body. And so it just can't be tapped for athletics and trying to explain that was really difficult, challenging because people didn't quite understand. We're in a much better position financially now. The markets obviously have done really well. Our endowments have done really well and we're getting support from the center as well as support from our alumni and friends. And so it put us in a much better position uh, to carry out the mission, which is, is to run 36 programs and do it well. Um, again, that's what Stanford prides itself on and whatever facet that they're doing to do that well. And so that's what we wanted to do. To get to the, the business side, as you we were talking about, you really have to start with the people. And you think about the several hundred of student athletes that we were affecting and the several thousand of alumni who've worn that uniform in those particular sports. That's where it gets really difficult uh, in trying to explain and, and work with. Uh, and so that was a tough um, period in which we were trying to work. Obviously, much, much, feel much better about where we come out now as we, we, we're committed to these sports uh, and these offerings. And, and now with the business size kicks in again, because now we're trying to figure out how do we support this further so we can have that tradition, continue that tradition of excellence across the board. But very optimistic now. Um, it, the feedback, the, the, the groundswell of support from alumni uh, that came forward and said, I will help uh, is, is something that we're just trying to ride, ride that wave. But, um, you know, the finances of running intercollegiate programs across the board, across the country, as you mentioned, with so many other places, uh, there's a pinch. Um, and, and it's something that you're going to have to look out for on the horizon because I, you just know that People are stretched and to run these entities and try to have the aspirations like a place like, like ours, um, it, it becomes difficult that you have to make choices. And, and so uh, I, I understand many of my peers are trying to sort through that, especially now coming out of a pandemic when, you know, the, the world's just not ready to snap back, at least parts of the country are not ready to snap back and say, let's have full stadiums and let's keep going. Um, so it does take time uh, and, and really strategic uh, investments and uh, strategic priorities in order to make this happen. So I don't think anybody is going to, you mentioned not everybody liking you at all times. Whew. It's not fun when you're cutting teams. Uh, you're not seen as a very likable figure when you're the one that's saying, hey, this is what we have to do. In addition to that, you're a person of color um, in the last 18 months we have had dialogue and conversations that are different than when I was on campus. I studied sociology and African-American studies. So I was trying to learn and, and educate it myself as best I can, but the conversations were not like the conversations that we've had in the last 18 months. 
Um, and we're also dealing with a pandemic, as you mentioned. So for you, holding the weight of making these difficult potential decisions for your university that's going to cast you perhaps as a villain or people that aren't going to like you, um, and kind of rightfully so, I think we can understand why someone yep. wouldn't yep. like the person that's getting rid of their sport at their university. I, I, understand, I can empathize with that while empathizing the decision that you, ha you had to make. Um, and then dealing with the racial, the complicated madness that we have experienced with, with what we saw with George Floyd. And then, you know, in some ways, some optimism in that maybe some things are coming out that have long been, you know, hidden behind closed doors and closed walls. What's the experience been like for you? And now have you kept yourself sane and healthy during a pandemic, racial unrest, and also tough decisions at your university? Well, you know, again, I credit the community I'm involved with. So when the murder of George Floyd occurred, uh, our black student athletes, some of our black student athletes reached out and said, you know, we need you. We need you to lead. Um, and, you know, we had done a little bit of an internal document right afterward, just saying, here's some resources that you can uh, uh, you can use and utilize. Um, uh, Bernard, and when, when, they, when they said that to you, were you in a place to do that, like mentally? Because I'm sure it impacted you and affected you. Like, how did you get yourself to a place where say, okay, like I, I can, I, I'm in, I, I can do it. Uh, mentally, probably not because I, I was struggling just like they were trying to comprehend what was going on and, and uh, the, just the severity and the brashness of that you saw on camera, which, you know, uh, you know, there's images that we've seen over the course of our lifetimes, but nothing is just graphic uh, like that. Uh, and so I, I was struggling. My daughter's, um, we're wrestling with this and we're talking about this. So no, I wasn't necessary in that headspace to say, okay, now I can, I'm ready to lead, uh, and help people through this. No, I don't think you ever are. Right. And, and, but yet the student athletes were calling upon, uh, me to, to, uh, and, and a few other of our administrative leaders here to say, we need you to, we need to hear from you and we need you to do something and we need you to gather us together and let us talk. And so we, we, this, this to the students upon them took it upon themselves to create uh, what we call Cardinal Black and uh, allowed us administrators, myself, uh, to kind of work with them, talk through the issues at hand, talk about what they're experiencing, taking something as, uh, as terrible that we saw a tragedy uh, in Minneapolis and then say, what are we, what, what are we, what are we dealing with here in, in on, our, on our own campus? Uh, and so now we have this group for, formulated. We're making efforts in the as a university as well as athletics in the DEI space, the diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and we're not where we need to be just yet, um, but we're still making. We're at least we're we're providing taking strides to do that. And I, I credit, like I said, I can start with our our black student athletes starting the conversation. And then many other conversations around our campus uh, came uh, soon thereafter. And, and now this is obviously a topic that uh, will not go away and should not go away. Um, but I, I just credit, again, the environment that we had to allow that to come forward. And for student athletes, can you imagine, uh, you know, uh, their age or you, their youth to be able to have the fortitude to say, you know what, this isn't right and I need help. And also, but I'm also looking to hear from you. To stay, to be able to do that, quite proud uh, to be associated with them 
And then, I, then to, to answer your question, yeah, then, then it dawned on me that I do need to step forward. I do need to say something, even though I don't know, have any idea what the answer should be. But I, but I, let me tell you what, what, how this impacts what I'm trying to do on, and how it impacts me on a, on a daily basis as well, too. I'm hurting just like you are. And I'm now they've drawn this out of me to share. Pretty impressive. Yeah. And imagine the vulnerability that you share in times like these are great opportunities for you to learn about yourself and then for them to learn about you and to create connections. As we wind down here, you've mentioned the word lead throughout this conversation today. How do you think about leadership and how do you think about developing leaders uh, at Stanford? Well, I, I think, you know, again, being in the athletic circles, there's so many opportunities uh, to, to truly lead. Um, uh, one of our uh, people in the Stanford community, Tyrone Willingham, I had the opportunity to, to work with him when we, he was at Notre Dame. And I remember going through a very tough stretch with him and, and it was a, a tough day. Uh, and, he's, and we were talking and he said, listen, Bernard, there's no down days. There's just opportunities to lead. And that has struck with me for the rest of my career from the time that I, I first had the chance to engage with him. And so how I think about leadership is just there's a chance for someone to take the reins and, and guide a group or bring people together to, with a, a common goal and, and, and to be a part of that and to do the best you can to own your craft so you're ready for those opportunities you, and you can take full advantage of them is something that you, that at least I think about uh, and want to be ready uh, when called upon, if called upon, uh, to carry out whatever mission we have at hand. And so that's how I view it. Uh, I know others may view it differently, um, but I, I just try to be as ready as I possibly can that if called upon or if we're knowing that it's time to take a step, that I, I'm prepared to do so. This has been an amazing conversation. You have a even killness or a um, easy ability to talk to that I have really found helpful and uh, I've really enjoyed. And yet you don't mince words. Your words are intentional and you're thoughtful with what you say. And you, like when we, before we even started recording, I said, is there anything you don't want to talk about? And I was expecting you to have some things that you don't want to talk about, but you're like, no, let's go. And uh, so I think you're someone who's willing to, to just have dialogue, even if it's difficult. So I appreciate those elements of you just spending an hour with you. I can tell that they're true and they're honest, even if they're difficult. And then I want to just give you a platform to promote anything that you think deserves promoting, whether it's the athletic department, a nonprofit you're involved with, if there's an organization, social media, you're on Twitter, you're, you're at Stanford underscore AD. Your last tweet was July 23rd. So, you know, if you want to follow Bernard there, you can follow him. Um, maybe when the season gets, gets going here, you might hear from him a little bit more, but is there anywhere where people can learn more about you or what you're passionate about? Uh, I want to just give you a megaphone to promote whatever it is. Oh, you thank you. I, obviously I would promote Stanford and Stanford athletics. I think the, the 900 student athletes that are running around wearing the uniform, they each have an individual story to tell that is better than my own. And I, I obviously this balance of academic and athletics uh, and really trying to be a, a beacon for college sport as to hey, here's what we're trying to do and do it uh, to the highest degree. I think that's pretty powerful. I, I, I talked about my boys and girls club experience. 
uh, growing up. At the time, it was just a boys club, but now it's it's evolved and rightfully so into the boys and girls club. We have uh, the boys and girls club of the peninsula that uh, I'm affiliated with, and so we we promote that because we know at any boys and girls club across the country, they're doing great things to hopefully inspire youth to do, go pursue their dreams. And so th that's really near and dear to me as well. Um, but I, I, I'm just thrilled. Brian, I'm going to promote your podcast now because this has been an enjoyable hour just to have a chance to spend uh, with you as well, just to talk. And, and I appreciate you asking the pointed questions and going a little bit deeper and pulling that out of uh, and I'm, I can't wait to listen to some more podcasts because I, I, you have a, a knack of drawing things out of people that you, you, you didn't realize that's where the conversation was going to go. So I thank you for that. So I, that, that's that's it in a nutshell. But it's it's been a pleasure. Well, I'll let you go back to leading that great institution. And, you know, I, I definitely was not getting into Stanford or Brown for that for that matter. But I got two small kids who appear to be a little wiser and and, and brighter than their dad, which they probably got it from their mom. So um, I want to thank you okay. for coming on the podcast. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and then LinkedIn's the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson as well. Feel free to connect with me there. Bernard, thanks for the time. Thanks for your leadership. And it's great to have people like you in the business of sport. Well, thank you so much for having me and uh, best of luck in this fall and have a wonderful fall. And hopefully our paths will cross again down the road. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. We like to, uh, at least I like to, to often talk about having every program be in the hunt uh, and be in the hunt for championships, conference championships. If, if, you're, if the ball falls a certain way, national championships, um, or I should say whatever playing field you're on. Um, but I, it, to, to me, I think that curiosity of what we can do, what can we aspire to, um, it is, is what drives you each and every day. And I know it drives our coaches and our student athletes to be their very best.